Amen. Well, if you'll turn in your copy of God's Word to 1 Samuel 25 this Lord's Day as we uh, resume now our study in 1 Samuel. We took uh, a couple of weeks off as we celebrated uh, the resurrection of our Lord Jesus and uh, looked at some passages in John 20 related to the crucifixion and resurrection of Christ. And so today uh, we're going to pick back up in 1 Samuel 25. And if you've been with us, just as a reminder of where we're at, uh, David has been fleeing from Saul, who uh, has been intent on taking David's life. Uh, There seems to be an indication he knows that David is going to be the king. And then in the last passage in 1 Samuel 24, uh, that's the first time we see Saul make that declaration that David indeed will be the king. And he, he makes that declaration, that confession, after finding out that David had the opportunity to kill him in the cave. Saul had gone into a cave and David had snuck up on him and David could have ended Saul's life, but he didn't. And that brings about what appears to be a repentant heart in Saul, although we'll see that it's not true repentance because there's not ongoing fruit of it as we look towards future chapters. But in the moment, he acknowledges that David indeed will be the king. But things are still not well. David doesn't just immediately take the throne of Israel. In fact, David and his men return to his stronghold there in the wilderness as Saul goes back home. And then that brings us to our text today. So we're going to be looking at most of 1 Samuel 25. It says in your notes uh, 1 through 44, but I'm going to wrap up at about verse 38 today. And so out of reverence for God's word, if you're able to, if you would stand As I read today's passage for us, this is the holy inspired word of God, and this is what God's word says. 1 Samuel 25, beginning in verse 1. Now Samuel died, and all Israel assembled and mourned for him, and they buried him at his house at Ramah. Then David rose and went down to the wilderness of Paran. And there was a man of Maon whose business was in Carmel. The man was very rich. He had 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats. He was shearing his sheep in Carmel. Now the name of the man was Nabal, and the name of his wife, Abigail. The woman was discerning and beautiful, but the man was harsh and badly behaved. He was a Calebite. David heard in the wilderness that Nabal was shearing his sheep. So David sent ten young men, and David said to the young men, Go up to Carmel and Go to Nabal and greet him in my name, and thus you shall greet him. Peace be to you, and peace be to your house, and peace be to all that you have. I hear that you have shears. Now your shepherds have been with us, and we did them no harm. And they missed nothing at all during the time uh, they were with my, excuse me, during the time they were in Carmel. Ask your young men, and they will tell you. Therefore, let my young men find favor in your eyes, for we come on a feast day. Please give whatever you have at hand to your servants and to your son David. When David's young men came, they said all this to Nabal in the name of David, and they waited. And Nabal answered David's servants, Who is David? Who is the son of Jesse? There are many servants these days who are breaking away from their masters. Shall I take my bread and my water and my meat that I have killed for my shearers and give it to men who come from I do not know where. So David's young men turned away and came back and told him all this. And David said to his men, Every man strap on his sword. 
and every man of them strapped on his sword. David also strapped on his sword, and about 4,000 men went up after David, while 2,000, or excuse me, 200 remained, excuse me, it was a long week, let's start back, and about 400 men went up after David, while about 200 remained with the baggage. But one of the young men told Abigail, Nabal's wife, Behold, Nabal sent messengers out of the wilderness to greet our masters, and he railed at them. Yet the men were very good to us, and we suffered no harm. And we did not miss anything when we were in the fields, as long as we went with them. They were a wall to us, both by night and by day. All the while we were with them, keeping the sheep. Now, for, now therefore know this, and consider what you should do, for harm is determined against our master and against all his house. And he is such a worthless man that one cannot speak to him. Then Abigail made haste and took 200 loaves and two skins of wine and five sheep already prepared and five seahs of parched grain and a hundred clusters of raisins and 200 cakes of figs and laid them on donkeys. She said to her young men, go before me and behold, I come after you. But she did not tell her husband Nabal. And she rode on the donkey and came down under the cover of the mountain. And behold, David and his men came down toward her to meet she met him. And David said, Surely in vain have I guarded all that this fellow has in the wilderness, so that nothing was missed of all that belonged to him, and he has returned me evil for good. God do so to the enemies of David, and more also if by morning I leave so much as one male who belongs to him. When Abigail saw David, she hurried and got down from the donkey and fell before David on her face and bowed to the ground. She fell at his feet and said, On me alone, my Lord, be the guilt. Please let your servant speak in your ears. Hear the words of your servant. Let not my Lord regard this worthless fellow Nabal, for, his, for as his name is, so is he. Nabal is his name, and folly is with him. But I, your servant, did not see the young men of my Lord, whom you sent. Now then, my Lord, as the Lord lives, and as your soul lives, because the Lord has restrained you from blood guilt and from saving with your own hand, now then let your enemies and those who seek to do evil to my Lord be as Nabal. And now let this present that your servant has brought to my Lord to be given to the young men who follow my Lord. Please forgive the trespass of your servant. For the Lord will certainly make my Lord a sure house, because my Lord is fighting the battles of the Lord. And evil shall not be found in you so long as you shall live. If men rise up to pursue you and to seek your life, the life of my Lord shall be bound in the bundle of the living and in the care of the Lord your God. And the lives of your enemies he shall sling out as from the hollow of a sling. And when the Lord has done to my Lord according to all the good that he has spoken concerning you and has appointed you prince over Israel, my Lord shall have no cause of grief or pangs of conscience for having shed blood without cause or for my Lord working salvation himself. And when the Lord has dealt well with my Lord, then remember your servant. And David said to Abigail, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who sent you this day to meet me. Blessed be your discretion and blessed be you who kept me this day from blood guilt and from working salvation with my own hand. 
For as surely as the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, who has restrained me from hurting you, unless you had hurried and come to meet me, truly by morning had, not, had there not been left Nabal so much as one male, then David received from her hand what she had brought him. And he said to her, Go up in peace to your house. See, I have obeyed your voice, and I have granted your petition. And Abigail said to Nabal, Behold, and behold, excuse me, and Abigail came to Nabal, and behold, he was holding a feast in his house, like the feast of a king. And Nabal's heart was merry within him, for he was very drunk. So she told him nothing at all until the morning light. And in the morning, when the wine he got out of Nabal, his wife told him these things, and his heart died within him, and he became as a stone. And about ten days later, the Lord struck Nabal, and he died. If you would pray with me. Father God, we thank you for your word, and as we now consider this passage, as we consider the life of Samuel, as we consider here the, the anger and the response and anger of David, as we consider how Abigail responds and how Nabal responds, I pray that you would help us to consider how we are to respond to your word. Help us, Lord, to respond in repentance and faith. We ask this now in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. You've likely all heard the expression, those who do not learn from history are doomed to repeat it. And yet, as financier Warren Buffett points out, we learn from history that people don't learn from history. <laughs> it seems that we don't learn from the mistakes that have been made before us, and yet, as God's people, when we come to the Word of God, we need to understand that one of the reasons God has given us this Word is that we might learn from history. And not just from those who did the right thing, but from those who did the wrong thing, that we might learn from obedience and disobedience, that we might learn from wisdom and foolishness, so that we might better walk by faith. And that's why we read in 1 Corinthians 10:11. Now, these things, referring back to the Old Testament, these things happened to them as an example. But they were written down for our instruction. So we are being instructed as we read through 1 Samuel 25. Even when I stumble through the words of 1 Samuel 25. Now, we are being taught as we consider the lives of Samuel and David, Nabal and Abigail, we, we are learning from what they did. Now, in learning from what they did, that doesn't mean that the principal application is, you know, be more like David, be more like Abigail, be more like these people. No, our, our focus should always be on Christ and on the gospel. But we can learn from their obedience and from their disobedience. We can learn from their faith and from their lack of faith. And so this morning, as we walk through this passage, I want us to consider four lessons that I believe we learn as we examine the lives in this passage, beginning with the first life that's mentioned in, in verse 1, that of Samuel. And from Samuel, I believe we learn that we are to finish well. We are to finish well. And so this lesson comes as we just consider what we read about Samuel, which isn't very much in this verse. In fact, there's three words here. Now Samuel died. Three words. And that's not much of an obituary. Now Samuel died. 
especially when you consider our, our modern context of obituaries. The average obituary is around 200 words, and of course there are those that go far beyond that. Uh, presidential obituaries are often over a thousand words. I read this week that uh, Pope John Paul II's obituary was 14,000 words. And yet Samuel got three. Now Samuel died. But of course, if you've been with us in our study, we know that Samuel got a lot more than three words in this book. And in fact, if we go back to the first chapter and we read on from that and we were to review all the things that we learned about Samuel, we'd see a lot more than three words about his life. Samuel, the son of Elkanah and Hannah, Samuel, whose mother presented him to the Lord at a young age to serve there in the temple with Eli. Samuel, who would go on to become the last judge of Israel and who would, always, who would also serve as a prophet and a priest. Samuel, who anointed Saul as the first king over Israel. Samuel, who despite being rejected by God's people who were crying out for a king, he continued to give them the word of God and to rebuke them and sought to teach them. Samuel, who was bold enough to rebuke Saul for his impatience and his disobedience. Samuel, who looked past the outer appearance of all of the rest of Jesse's son and looked on the youngest, the smallest David, and understood from the Lord that he would be the next king of Israel. Samuel, who by all accounts that we have, who finished well, his faith intact, and his focus on the Lord. In fact, in my study over the last couple of weeks, I found at least one commentator mentioned that there's reason to believe that it's not coincidental that Samuel's death comes just after the events at the end of chapter 24 where we have Saul for the first time publicly acknowledging that David would be the next king over Israel. It's almost as if Samuel was holding on until the day he saw these things come to fruition. He was holding on and praying and longing for the day that Saul would finally recognize that God indeed had removed his hand from him and he had placed it on another, a neighbor who was better than him. He was waiting for that public declaration. And once that came, well then Samuel was ready to go home and be with the Lord. Verse 1 tells us, now Samuel died and all Israel assembled and mourned for him and they buried him in his house in Ramah. I imagine... That would have been quite a sight. All of Israel gathering. You think about our modern day funerals of presidents and dignitaries and world leaders and how all these people come out and gather. And you imagine what it would have been for Samuel, for all of Israel to come out and gather to grieve and to mourn. You would have King Saul and his army and entourage there. And perhaps too you would have David and his his band of misfit men with him. And all these others gathering to mourn a man who had finished well. And friends, that's a reminder of the consistent call we see in Scripture on our lives. That we are to finish well. That we are reminded over and over again to persevere, to endure, to keep our focus on Christ who is our anchor, to look ahead and long for that day in a new heaven and a new earth. To finish 
the race that we have started. And to understand that Christ, through the power of the Holy Spirit, is the one who enables us to run this race. And so we're reminded from Samuel to finish well, to walk by faith, to not grow weary, to fight the good fight, to endure and to persevere. Our second lesson then comes from David. And that lesson is this, number two, do not repay evil for evil. And so we pick up now at verse 1 after the death of Samuel, and we, here we find David and his men going back to their stronghold. Now again, as a, a reminder, you'll remember that in the last chapter, uh, David was commended by Saul of all people uh, for not returning evil for evil, for returning good for evil. Hey, he had that opportunity in the cave where he could have ended this wickedness of Saul, where he could have ended this pursuit by Saul, where he could have taken him out. He could have taken matters into his own hands. But he didn't do that. He had restraint. He had trust in the Lord so that Saul said to David in chapter 4, verse 17, You are more righteous than I, for you have repaid me good, whereas I repaid you evil. So we saw a picture then of him repaying evil with good. But that was then. And this is now. And now we see a different response from David as he deals with this man named Nabal. And the narrative tells us here that David and his men go back to their stronghold in the wilderness and they were in need of provisions. And it was during a time of the year when uh, shepherds would go out and they would shear their sheep. And there was a feast that would go along with this. And, and hearing of these things, David recognized that Nabal's men had been with his men at some point in the wilderness. And that his men had essentially guarded Nabal's men and guarded their flocks so that no harm came to them. They had taken care of them then. Chances are they had shared provisions with them then. And now there's an opportunity for David to ask for kindness in return for kindness. For good in return for good. He treated Nabal's men well, and now he's going to request that Nabal treat his men well. So he sends this delegation of his men to Nabal. And he asks for these uh, provisions. But we read in verse 9 that Nabal refuses. We find out later from his wife that his, his very name gives us an indication of why he refused. Nabal meant fool. Now it's, it's hard to believe that his parents gave him this name. <laughs> I mean you can imagine the scenario. Uh, perhaps you've been there your child is born, and maybe you were waiting until that point of birth to, to give a name, and you look at that child, and you say, well, they, they, they look like a, a Thomas or, or a Richard or an Abigail. And it's hard to believe that parents would look at this child and say, you know, he just looks like a fool. <laughs> he looks like he's going to have a lifetime of bad decisions ahead of him. That's what we'll call him, fool. No, it's, chances are that's not what happened here. This was a name that he probably earned along the way. Now, this is likely some type of nickname or perhaps even a twist on what his birth name had been. Whatever the case, he had picked up this name for a reason. And we see that reason when we watch how he responds to David's request. And he basically isn't going to meet the request. He, he's not going to help them out at all. He rejects David's men and he rejects David. Now remember again, this is the Lord's anointing. 
And Nabal here is rejecting the Lord's anointing. But then his foolishness is met by David's foolishness. Because when David hears these things, the David who had just repaid evil for good, notice how he responds when he hears about Nabal. Back then he responded to evil with good. Now he's going to repay evil with vengeance. He immediately straps on the sword. He immediately calls on hundreds of his men to strap on their swords. They're going to go in their anger and they're going to strike down Nabal and strike down his men. And the question for us then is, why would David do this? Why would a man who just a chapter before, who I would say had been insulted and treated harshly much more by Saul than Nabal, I mean, Nabal hadn't thrown a sword at him at the dinner table. Nabal hadn't sent an army after him. Nabal was just simply saying, I'm not sharing with you. <laughs> why go from repaying evil with good to repaying evil with vengeance? Well, friends, it's a reminder to us that David is just a man and that David has struggles. In fact, J.C. Ryle said it well when he wrote this, The best of men are only men at best. Patriarchs, prophets, and apostles, martyrs, church fathers, reformers, Puritans, all are sinners who need a Savior, holy, useful, honorable in their place, but sinners, after all. And that's why, again, we, we don't come to 1 Samuel and walk away with the application every week of be like David, be like David, be like David. We don't want to be like David. And we want to be like Jesus. And we want to learn from David's story that which points us to Jesus. And what points us to Jesus aren't just the times David obeys, it's the times he disobeys because David, like us, needed a Redeemer. David, like us, needed a Messiah. David, like us, needed one who would offer forgiveness and grace and mercy. David, like us, is dealing with a fallen nature. And so we hear, we see here, we're reminded here, the best of men are only men at their very best. But God is gracious to David. And we can see, I believe, this grace in our own lives, this, this restraining grace of God. He keeps David from acting on his foolish plans. And friends, if we were to go around this sanctuary this morning by a show of hands, by testimony after testimony after testimony, I believe we could all speak of God's restraining grace in our own lives. Where God protected us from our own foolish plans. When God kept us from acting on those angry thoughts that entered into our mind. We see a picture of that here of David who, sword strapped on the side, army behind him is ready to repay evil for evil, but through God's restraining grace, through his providential intervention, he keeps them from doing that. And in doing that, we're reminded of this lesson not to repay evil for evil, and we're reminded of it throughout God's word. James says it this way in James chapter 1, beginning in verse 19, know this, my beloved brothers. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. You notice how you see David doing the exact opposite of that. He was quick to hear, but he was even quicker to speak, and even quicker to anger and act in his anger. And that does not lead him or us to the righteousness of God. 
Romans 12, verse 17. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. Our natural inclination is, you struck me, I will strike you back. You have offended me, I will equally offend you. You come after me, I will come after you. It takes a work of the gospel of Jesus Christ to change that vengeful heart. To where we then will trust in God and that vengeance is His. And to where we understand that if anyone is deserving of consequence or wrath or response, it is us for our sin that we have committed and offended a holy God with. It is only through the gospel that we can then repay no one evil for evil. That we can be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. So the lessons to us here are finish well and do not repay evil for evil. Number three, the next lesson, be a peacemaker. Be a peacemaker. And this lesson comes to us from Abigail, who is the wife of Nabal. And I can only assume this was some type of arranged marriage because when you see her response and her actions compared to his response and his actions, well, they're not on the same page at all. Where he is foolish, she is wise. And we see her wisdom in seeking to make peace with David and with his men. So the men from David come to Nabal. Nabal refuses them. And the men at this point, Nabal's men, they probably have an indication of what's about to happen. They've figured out what's coming next. And so one of those men comes to Abigail and tells Abigail what's taking place. Tells Abigail about how her foolish husband that nobody can talk to had made this rash decision, had been greedy and selfish, had held on to his provisions, and now it set David's men away with nothing. And Abigail is able to look at that and to respond by making peace. And so immediately she, she gets to work and starts getting food and provisions together. And maybe you, some of you have had that experience where you were planning for a meal, you were planning for guests, and then you find out at the last minute from your, your spouse or your kids or a relative or a friend that, oh, by the way, uh, there's another eight people coming tonight. And you're scrambling at the last minute. You're, you're trying to come up with something and put all this together. Well, imagine what that was for Abigail. I mean, look at what she does here. She does a little bit more than uh, throw some pizza rolls in the toaster oven. She's She's baking loaves of bread and filling wineskins with wine. She's taking these sheep, which were already prepared, likely for those shears in the field. She's getting all this together with uh, raisins and grain and fig cakes and, and this massive amount of provision and loading them on these donkeys and preparing them in to go out and to take this with David. In fact, she sends this on to David and his men with haste. She wants this provision to get there. Why? Because she wants to intervene and she wants to make peace. And so notice what happens. She approaches David. Chances are this provision has already gotten there. This has stopped him in his vengeful tracks. Verse 24. She says, On me alone, my Lord, be the guilt. All that guilt that, that rightly lays on Nabal, all that guilt that he's about to take vengeance on, on Nabal and his men, she says, no, put, put that all on me. In verse 28, please forgive the trespass of your servant. So what is Abigail doing here? 
Abigail, if you just kind of picture this, you've got Nabal and, and his men over here, and you've got David and his approaching army over here going towards them, and then you've got Abigail right in the middle. And she stands in the middle on behalf of Nabal and his men, and she says, no, let that their guilt be on me. Let what they did be on, on me. Forgive me. Forgive this trespass. And she offers this offering, this provision to David. And David seems to come to his senses here. Hey, he pauses in his vengeful tracks. He, he shows mercy. He, he acknowledges that he was about to act in anger and in foolishness. Abigail heaps praise upon praise on him. Abigail here speaks almost in a prophetic voice to him to say, listen, if you don't do this thing you're about to do, here's the benefit of it. Here's why you shouldn't do this. Here's what would come of this. And David is listening to her. And as he listens to her, well, his, his heart changes. He shows mercy. He shows grace. He shows forgiveness. So then in verse 35, he looks at her and he says, go up in peace to your house. I mean, just think of that picture. One moment, David and his army are coming in vengeful wrath with sword in hand. And now after this intervention, now there's peace. Abigail was used by God here to be a peacemaker. And friends, that's what we're called to do as well. Rather than responding to evil with evil, we respond to evil with good. Why? Because we are to be peacemakers. 1 Peter 3.9 Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviving, but on the contrary, bless for this is what you are called to, that you may obtain a blessing. And so our natural impulse is to return evil for evil, to curse those who curse us, but this is not what the gospel calls us to. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, verse 9, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. James 3.18 tells us, And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. And we're reminded in Romans 12.18, If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. We are called to be peacemakers. And foundationally, we are called to be peacemakers because we are at peace with God through Jesus. Jesus is the ultimate peacemaker. Jesus is the one who made peace between us and God. Jesus is the one who stood in between on our behalf and said, let our guilt be on Him. Jesus is the one who made peace with the Father. And because of that, in response to that, for those who have repented and have faith and have trusted in Jesus, who have confessed Jesus as Lord, then friends, we are to make peace with others. We forgive. Why? Because we have been forgiven. We love. Why? Because He first loved us. This is not a motivational seminar on just be more forgiving, just be more loving. This is a gospel reminder. What has God done for you? Now do that in return. Don't, don't be like the one Jesus speaks of in that parable who is forgiven so much but refuses to forgive so little. We need a constant reminder of this lesson that we are to be peacemakers because Jesus has made peace for us. 
Romans chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And of those who know peace, we are to seek to make peace. Nabal was a fool. And friends, apart from the gospel, you and I are fools as well. We are fools left to ourselves. And we need someone to stand in our place. And we need someone to say, let let their foolish guilt be on me. And that's exactly what we see in the gospel. Jesus stands in our place. Jesus takes the wrath of God on our behalf that we might be made righteous through his sacrifice. One that far exceeds what Abigail does. One that far exceeds anything that anyone does apart from the picture we see at Calvary of what Jesus does on the cross. Because Jesus has made peace with God for us, we too are to be peacemakers. So, again, the lessons here, finish well. Do not repay evil for evil. Be a peacemaker. And then finally, number four, we're to place our trust in the Lord. We're to place our trust in the Lord. And so Abigail goes in peace, and she goes back home. And then notice the scene that she finds here. Uh, We read that, that her husband Abel is throwing the feast of a king. And so notice what we see here in this chapter. We have David, a king, acting like a fool. And we have Nabal, a fool, acting like a king. And so she comes and sees this and sees how he's drunk and he's having this massive feast and she's held all these things back from him. She's not told him. He's too foolish to notice all those provisions that are missing. But she waits until the next morning till when he sobers up and she tells him what's taken place. And notice what the scripture tells us. His his heart, he has some type of massive stroke or heart attack. And ten days later he dies. God takes vengeance on Nabal. God, through his restraining grace, holds David back, holds this blood guilt out of his hands, and God is the one who rightly takes his vengeance on Nabal. And so this passage we've looked at today, then it it begins and it ends with an obituary. (laughs) And they couldn't be more different, could they? You have Samuel, who finished well, who trusted in the Lord. And you have Nabal, who you may have noticed this when we're introduced to him in this chapter. We don't even get his name till later. We're just told about his possessions. Well, well, there was a man who had all this stuff. Well, there's a man who had all this livestock. It's as if that's all he's got going for him is the massiveness of his possessions. But by the end of this passage, what does he have left? You heard it often. You can't take it with you. We see a man who lived for his possessions and nothing else, who would not put his trust in the Lord's anointed who would not share what he had. I mean, again, consider this picture here. David, who's anointed king. David then, who has a rightful claim to everything in the land, comes to one who is a caretaker of what is his, requests some of it, and he won't let go. We see that picture all the time, though, don't we? People all over the place, they're holding on to their stuff. That they find their, 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 their value in their stuff. They find their glory in their stuff. And one day, it's all gone. 
And that's the picture we see here of Nabal, as one who wouldn't put his trust in the Lord, who was a fool acting like a king. And it reminds us not to do what he did. Don't hold on to your stuff. Don't put your value in your stuff. Trust in the Lord. Hold things loosely. Put put your hope in Christ and the Lord and the Lord's anointed. And do not refuse the Lord's anointed. As Nabal did, and sadly as so many do today. Put your trust in Him. I say that knowing this, that Lord's Day after Lord's Day after Lord's Day, the gospel would be proclaimed from this pulpit and from many others around the world. And yet there will be people who in the hardness of their heart, they will not trust in the Lord. It will take an act of the Holy Spirit to change them and change you if you're one of them this morning. And so I plead with you not to refuse the Holy Spirit. Not to refuse the Word of God, but to rightly respond and listen to it. The writer of Hebrews says it well in Hebrews 3 verse 7, Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts. And what does His voice say? I'll remind you again. His voice says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and the wages of sin is death. But God demonstrates His love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And if you will confess Jesus as your Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Friends, that is the gospel. Do not refuse it. Do not be like Nabal and so many others. Repent and believe and trust in Jesus. That's our call today, and that's our call each Lord's Day. So let's take time now to pray about that call and pray about our response to it as we prepare to respond and to sing together. If you would stand with me as I pray for us. Father, I pray today that as we have looked to this chapter of Scripture, as we have thought about these words, I pray, God, that we would be attentive to them and that we would hear them and that we would not refuse that which the Spirit says. Everything that is put before us in your word is is written to us, is inspired by the, the Spirit. And I pray that we would not refuse that which the Spirit says. That, that we would respond in repentance and faith. That, that our hearts this morning would not grow harder, but Lord, that they might soften. And so Lord, I pray this morning for any who, perhaps they started well, but Lord, they're, they're not on track to finish well. I pray, God, that they would repent and trust in you. I pray, Lord, for those this morning who are, who, who are wrestling with the desire to return evil for evil, to, to curse those who curse them pray that you would soften their hearts, that they might return good for evil. Lord, I pray that you would help us to be a people who are peacemakers. And as we make peace, that we would be reminded and remind others that we can only make peace because you've made peace with us through Jesus. 
And I, I pray, Lord, indeed, that, that we would be a people who would put their trust and their hope in Jesus. We pray that you would do the work that only you can do. And we ask that in the name of Christ our King. Amen. And church family, as we respond to God's word through worship, we do invite you uh, to sing, to pray, to repent, to respond. I'll be available down front this morning to pray with you, to counsel with you. If God's leading you to come and confess Christ as Lord today, uh, to, to share a public uh, declaration of your faith in Jesus, to take the next step in believer's baptism, to start the process of joining this church family, or if you just need somebody to pray with you, well, I'll be here. Others are available as well. And so we invite you to come. We invite you to sing as we respond to God's word. Thank you.